everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Running Into the Fog here. Derek Johnson, over at WDC. Welcome, Eric. It was great to record these episodes with you. How are great. you today? Great. How are you doing? Good. Uh, we are really excited to have our special friend, guest, Joanna Park Tonks, with us today from the great uh, country of Austria. Uh, at least I believe that's where you're, you're residing here as we uh, get together today. And it's about seven hours ahead, recording this on. July 21. Um, we expect this session to go live sometime middle to late September-ish. And uh, just really looking forward to an awesome and engaging conversation with you today, Joanna. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your honored invitation. It's, it's lovely to reconnect with you both again after all this while. Right on. So after all this while, it's been almost 10 years since we last saw one another. Yeah. in uh, Vienna back in 2011, according to our notes. That's um, right. You know, it's funny how it can be a, seem like a lifetime since you see people, but once you get reconnected, even on Zoom, mm-hmm. you, know, you have an opportunity to catch up pretty quickly. And I think from Eric and I, uh, our perspective, you, you've got a really interesting story, uh, Joanne, of how you Thank got you. started as a CI analyst. Yeah. That's, of course, how we met almost a decade or more ago. Uh, but then you've inspired us with the story of how you actually branched off uh, from that career, so to speak, and you started uh, a new expedition that we hope you'll share a lot about today. Eric, do you have any leading question as we get started here on that topic? Well, I'll just share that I've been a fan of Joanna Park Talks for probably closer to 15 years than than 10. And, uh, you you know, I I show you off to my kids uh, from Facebook, uh, or I haven't seen a lot of Facebook posts from you lately, but... um, they think of you as the modern incarnation of uh, the sort of the Downton Abbey lady who in the 21st century can do anything, is, a lot, is, is given permission to start her own company and wow. do stuff like that. And so uh, you are just uh, in, in my family, uh, the epitome of class. And uh, I think the gumption and hustle and grit that you've shown me at least over the last decade and a half plus. Uh, I'm just really delighted that we're able to get you on here and have you uh, as our interlocutors uh, get together as Thank the you. Joe Bros and, and talk through so so that our audience can learn who you are as, and you know Thank admire you. you as much as I do. And my, and oh, my that's, that, that's, that's really the most wonderful praise I could hope to receive, but something quite to live up to. Um, Yes, Downton Abbey. Well, um, I suppose the only thing I really have in common with Downton Abbey are the diamonds. Um, I don't have the castle, unfortunately, though I did. I was telling your brother before we came on live, actually, I was lucky enough to study at the University of Durham, which is just right by the Scottish border, actually in Durham Castle. So that was quite special. So, yeah, so um, casting my mind back, um, we were meeting together at Skip in Orlando, which was quite a surreal experience to be at Disney World with a bunch of CI people. And I've just always felt tremendously inspired by you both, by your visionary capabilities, you know, at the helm of the CI industry and, and you know, your great entrepreneurship. So, um, as we say in German, flowers back to you both. Um, so, really, my journey started with a mutual colleague of ours, um, Arthur Weiss, who um, you know is such a talented CI luminary, and um, I really believe that in one's career, 
that one is lucky enough to have a few angels. And I use that term in its broadest sense. In other words, people who really believe in one and not only pass one projects and work, but really are generous, almost in a spiritual sense with their knowledge and their learnings and teachings. And, um, you know, through communing with Arthur and yourself and some other sort of seasoned CI professionals, I kind of really learned the ropes. And I really believe, in, and I'd be interested in your views on this, that everything that one experiences in life, both professionally and personally, that it, it contributes to one's broader vision and that everything that one learns and takes with, with one is ultimately used in some capacity. And, you know, we've all done some pretty obscure CI projects over the years, you know, from auto component parts to probiotics to, you know, I'm sure that you've done a very eclectic bunch of projects in your time as well. But I must admit, now starting my new venture in the diamond business, I'm so glad that I had the founding basis, the foundation in CI, because I think business is a lot about knowing what are the right questions to ask and knowing where to look for the answers. And then, as we say in CI, you know, is it actionable? Does it pass the so what test? So that filtering ability, I think, is a key business skill. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. And by the way, I got into the CI business 25 years ago and a little more when I had a company in on the West Coast inquire. I had just gotten started with Aurora and it was a an abstract couple of years getting going, which is how it goes with any company. And uh, I had a company out West called the California Emu Ranch, who I think is gone now, but uh, they had 50,000 breeding pairs of emu birds uh, because it was the hot sort of agricultural commodity at the time. And, and I was hired to do a worldwide uh, growth forecast to help them pick which uh, market to invest in. And ultimately it was Japan. Uh, that was a gigantic mistake in hindsight, but hey, they hired a guy who didn't know how to do competitive intelligence at the time who was sort of learning on their dime and, and they paid me accordingly, by the way. Uh, so uh, I was not the cause of their downfall, but they were certainly the cause of my interest in this domain and something that you know got me interested enough to know that I would never be bored in my career if I was a competitive intelligence analyst. So how did you get into it, Joanna? Where'd your, where'd your CI career start? Um, well, it started uh, with a company, actually, I'm originally from Cambridge, UK, as you know, and, and we have a sort of mini Silicon Valley there. It's not that mini anymore. And I worked with a consultancy there as I was a student at university. Um, I speak German, French, and Italian. So that's quite unique skill set to be able to do CI primary in those languages. But I think um, the thing that really unites um, my path in CI and now my new path in jewelry is really a love of people. And mm. so um, I've always sort of approached CI almost as an investigative journalist because I just find people endlessly fascinating how they talk what they tell you, what they don't tell you. And for me, it was just ferreting out that information, which was just endlessly fascinating. Awesome. I wonder, uh, my, my first question is, if you have this love of people, do we uh, sound, do we have such uh, lovely accents from your Absolutely. ear to us as, as you have for us? A you know, Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um, you know, it's often said that between American English and British English, we're divided by a common language. But I think, I think that the, the the charm levels 
uh, are, are very, very high on, on the English side, you know, when we listen to American accents. Yeah. Well, it's an inspiring story, Joanna, of, of why you got uh, into this. And I, I know in having spoken with you leading up to today's recording, you know, a, a good share of the motivation for starting the business that you started mm-hmm. had to do with uh, the ethics and the morality uh, of some of the companies that were, in your opinion, perhaps going about it in a in a odd framework or odd way of thinking about it. Can you speak yeah. a little bit more about that? Because it's, you know, I think uh, your foundation in CI and then you being inspired, uh, kind of seeing how it could be done differently. And yes. everybody has their own uh, you know, level of morals and ethics and all. But yes. can you can you share a little bit more about what mm. uh, aspect that brought to the yeah. business model that you set up? Absolutely. I'd very much like to actually link it back to CI because um, as you as you both uh, are aware, you know, ethics is a key part of the um business reality of doing CI as an ethical practitioner. And I think more broadly, you know, as business people and as human beings, I think we all have like an internal barometer inside ourselves. And I I think that um, I don't really want to get into a discussion about moral absolutes because, you know, actually that's a famous question at the Cambridge um, entrance exam for students is, you know, um, do you believe in absolutes and moral absolutes? And apparently the model answer is absolutely zero. So I think that, you know, ethics and morality do play a part in business, um, in your business and in mine. And Laboratory Grown Diamonds, um, which is the field I'm active in now with Chelsea Rocks, is a relatively new segment. So in the 1950s, industrial diamonds came to the fore, and it's only been in the last sort of five to 10 years been possible to produce gemological quality stones which are indistinguishable from mine diamonds so it's often said that mine diamonds are a miracle of nature of mother earth that have been produced over millennia as a result of the earth's natural geological processes intense light and heat and laboratory grown diamonds i like to celebrate them as a product of innovation and your business is also about innovation. So I celebrate technology and innovation as well as beauty and allied to the concept of beauty for me is also behaving in a beautiful way, in a kind way, in a gentle way, making sure that we're um, honorable custodians of, of the earth, you know, of natural resources and also preventing the exploitation of the poor which uh, unfortunately we all know happens in mining communities. However, I'd be really at pains to point out that I'm not here today or indeed indeed at any point to kind of um, disparage in any way the efforts by the mined diamond community. They've done an awful lot to, you know, in places like Botswana to, you know, fund schools, airports, medical facilities, and also De Beers, you know, with their forever mark um, certification. I'm not sure if you're aware, but De Beers have tried to trace the provenance of a diamond. It's all about, you know, um, you know, trying to trace back the supply chain of diamonds. So I think great, great efforts have been made. Um, but as, as far as my own journey is concerned and to relate to your direct question, I just felt that laboratory grown diamonds offer consumers a choice. In in diamond terminology, we often talk about the four C's, you know, 
the color of the diamond, the carrot of the diamond, etc. And I, I'm saying that we're offering another C, and that C is choice. And mm. you know, it's just another kind of diamond which which we can make available to people. That's lovely. And, you know, I was watching a, a program on uh, our public broadcasting a couple of nights ago. We we're talking about marketing in the 1950s and how uh, here in the United States in the post-war era, the notion that a diamond is forever, uh, that trademark uh, did not exist yet before the 1950s. And it was really the notion that an engagement ring, and you tell me about Europe and the UK because I don't know, but the notion of, a, of an engagement ring having a, a diamond in it as a demonstrable, almost an uh, like a dowry style, you know, setting aside of wealth so that someone knew you were committed, that that was almost a marketing concept rather than a genuine part of the sort of romantic heritage of any one country, let alone South Africa for that matter. But talk to me a little bit about the, the marketing and merchandising side of the business and, and how Chelsea Rocks really disrupts that. I'll say, I think that that value system that was established around Diamond is Forever is being challenged. And you have what I would call a, a gamma growth strategy to challenge this uh, incumbent value proposition with a new value proposition that actually creates a tremendously different narrative for people who are into not just jewelry, but you know specifically diamond jewelry, and then the role that diamond jewelry plays in our culture. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So you'll have to prompt me if, if I forget some of those questions. So the first thing I'd like to say is that jewelry generally, not just diamonds, jewelry is in itself, in my opinion, a language. You know, if you look at ancient and tribal cultures, you know, jewelry was used in all sorts of contexts, you know, for barter, for religion, for symbolism, for ceremony. And it's only, as you alluded to, only relatively recently that diamonds particularly have become the symbol of romance and the symbol of eternal love. And quite frankly, when you see the luster and the scintillation of the beauty, uh, the beauty of the diamond, it's very easy to see how one would make that metaphor. But it was the stroke of marketing genius of De Beers in the 1950s that persuaded, you know, that the salary man in America to Japan that he would have to put the equivalent of two months wage aside to, you know, buy his betrothed a beautiful sparkly diamond. Um, and it was very much a contrivance in that sense, um, you know, without wishing to sound cynical. And as you know, I'm probably one of the most romantic people that you could meet. Um, and it really was, it really was a, a stroke of genius. And I think that um, that has now become embedded in our culture. Um, it has often been said that, um, you know, the millennials and the Generation Z who are just, you know, coming up now to become of marriageable age, um, don't wish to give diamond rings, engagement rings in the same way and that they prefer to spend on experiences. And I think to respond to your question about Chelsea Rocks, I think laboratory grown diamonds do have the opportunity to change that narrative. But I think, I think that's been slightly over-egged, if you don't mind me saying. And I think that diamonds will always be, because of their visual appeal, will always be a symbol of celebration. Um, and I think that the thing that has changed with laboratory grown diamonds 
is that there's this whole shift around, I think, you know, if you look at what's happened with hybrid cars and vegan leather, and even the milk industry, which is now 25% plant-based, I think that there is this massive shift towards sustainability and asking some quite tough, clear-eyed questions about what one is buying and the provenance of what one's buying. So yes, I think that diamonds will always be associated with love, but I think maybe the meaning that we're attaching to them is becoming slightly more nuanced with the younger generation. Oh, well said. I like what you said, Joanna. You know, obviously the, the four C's, it's been a while since these two Johnson brothers have bought a diamond, perhaps. I don't know about you, Eric, but it's been 13 or so years for me. Um, you know, the, the four C's are, are somewhat well-known, even, even with guys who aren't uh, sort of in that game on a day-to-day basis or even for decades. Um, cut, color, clarity, and carrot. But I love what you said about you're adding an extra C and that being choice. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect, you know, we've said for a long time that, that choice-making Rather than decision making, choice making is an important quality for intelligence professionals to develop, because you know it's ultimately uh, on us to provide perspective on markets. Uh, Eric talked about the EMU, uh, and that was the EMU uh, market sizing forecast story is legendary <laughs> from our side. Uh, I can remember our mom getting involved in that you know, way back when uh, with some field research and, you know, we won't have to replay all that. I think we actually did go into that on a former podcast, but the choice concept mm-hmm. is really instrumental. We, we think to being a, a well-rounded intelligence activist and, and professional, because it's on us to present to our stakeholders options and right. to uh, help them see how those different choices are going to impact their businesses positively or negatively, right? And, you know, love the correlation back to, you know, you're giving your your clients, your customers of laboratory-grown diamonds mm-hmm. an extra choice, but the, the carry forward to the intelligence profession, I think with choice uh, being that, that fifth C, um, at least in our conversation here today, is really cool. Any yeah, thoughts on I, that? Yeah, I mean, um... I mean, I'll let you obviously expand more about the choice in the CI community. I mean, with regards to laboratory grown diamonds, the other key, one of the other key benefits of lab growns is that that they're typically 30% less expensive than mine diamonds. And I'm always fond of saying that everyone shops with a budget, you know, unless I don't know, you're a footballer, footballer's wife or something. But um, I think that particularly in this what I can hesitantly call post-pandemic world, I think that we're all more conscious, or I hope we are, of the choices that we make, not only in the things that we consume, but also, you know, we're living in straightened economic times now. So um, the way I like to look at the issue of choice is that there's not only a choice in terms of making sustainable and perhaps more responsible choice choosing laboratory grown diamond but also you can afford a bigger and better quality diamond for the same money that you would spend on a mine diamond so when I was last in New York actually it was my last trip before the pandemic blew up I went into Kay's Jewelers who I'm sure you're familiar with 
And I said to them, you know, show me a one carat G color. So diamond grading in terms of color counterintuitively starts at D for Delta. So a D color flawless stone would be like the crown, Delta crown. So a G color is a good sort of middle of the road, good color. Show me a G one carat mined diamond engagement ring, which is the classic ring in America, the most best sold ring for engagements. And I said, line it up next to the closest example that you have in laboratory grown. And there was a $6,000 difference between the two. And you cannot tell the difference. A gemologist cannot tell the difference with a loop. You know, only if you start looking at the crystalline formation, the crystal structure formation with, you know, some mega nerdy piece of kit, can you actually tell the difference? So the man in the street can't tell the difference. So, you know, I think, I think that people are just very conscious of, of their choices in general at the moment. And I think that um, it's lovely to be able to give a greater number of people the chance to own a diamond. And like you said, the, uh, the demographic shift that's occurring, the millennials becoming of marriage age, right? And that maybe right. spending more on experiences, your 30% uh, you know, can't tell the difference uh, alternative you know, uh, through this innovation allows them to take some of that budget and maybe go spend it elsewhere. On travel or, you know, their honeymoon, exactly. As Derek said, it's been a little while since I bought a diamond for anybody uh, and I've never bought a diamond for myself. So I uh, don't (laughs) have an appreciation for much. And I think that's true of most of the uneducated Mm -hmm. buyer uh, market, which is, I think if you're in a traditional sort of heterosexual relationship and you're a dude buying a engagement ring for your significant other to try and talk her into marrying you the there is very minimal criteria that has been established in terms of what to expect and what to shop for and I remember doing a very light amount of research on this when I bought my wife's uh, ring when we got married and I remember the term fire being the way I think they described to us uneducated buyers you got to look for the fire in the in the stone and this notion of fire yes. i think was something that maybe the lab growns didn't have so the the mine diamonds seemed to be better somehow or it was worth paying more for it again this is a quarter of a century ago so don't right i mean i think i think you touched on some really fascinating points i mean i think that going back to the example of de beers when they um sort of introduced the concept let's say i think if I can overstretch slightly and say that they didn't attempt to confuse the consumer, but I think that diamonds also in literature and art, you know, they've been these subjects of great mystique and fascination. It's always been slightly cloak and dagger. And I think that that has also been part of the narrative over generations for diamonds. Um, And I think that it is confusing and it is challenging because, you know, one only has so much time, one's worried about being ripped off. You know, the average budget in the US, I think for an engagement ring is around $5,000. So, you know, on the one hand, one doesn't know, it's like you say in in CI, you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm, So um, with my approach to Chelsea Rocks, as you might see on my website, um, I'm actually working with a highly talented gemologist who sadly couldn't join us today, Helen Dimmick from the UK who's got a national profile, Um, together, we really try to create an education-led approach. So 
in addition to the podcasts, um, we've also, you know, got a lot of articles, you know, um, third party verification certification. And to pick up on your point about fire, um, we actually work with a really um, innovative Israeli startup called Serene. Well, actually, they're not a startup. They deal with, I think, a million stones a year. So they have this really cool technology, which I'm sure you dig. So essentially, you can um, place your diamond um, on your laptop or your phone, and you can actually rotate it 360 so you can actually see the fire, which is how the light interacts, the light play within the stone reacts. So I think, you know, diamonds will always have this romance, I hope, but I hope that we can, in a really transparent way, you know, share our love for diamonds and, and teach people about them. Right. Super cool. Well, you know, I think the uh, the choice part of what you're doing is part of a new, um, we call it superiority criteria, and it's how the market rewards different offers with their share. Um, mm -hmm. And so establishing the superiority criteria of Chelsea Rock's product and the offer around it, it's more than just the, the stone, it's all the, the values that the stone embodies. And exactly. that sort of, I, I called it an improvable gamma a second ago, because if you think of the performance that the market is looking for uh, with, and I'm going back to when I was buying an engagement ring myself. So that performance was a, what I would call a beta. It, in other words, the alpha of a De Beers style, you know, mine diamond and the bigger, the better and all that sort of thing had entered a state of overshoot for a lot of the market that was buying. And so I think lab grown originally were beta specializations. In other words, we're going to specialize around this narrower band of the value chain that the market actually will reward with share, but do so in a very, you know, um, the, the, the sort of condescending way to describe it would be a stripped down way. They're stripping down all of the stuff around anything that the mine diamond would, would bring to market in order to focus on the quality of the um, stone and the, the job that's for hire that the buyer's thinking of. And if the, if the buyer is a proposing groomsman, then the job for hire is get me an engagement ring that my wife, future wife, will be satisfied with for the lowest amount of money available. Right. What you're doing is you're moving down the Z-axis into a new dimension of performance. And I would call your P2, I would sharpen that term choice. And really even, did you use the term character as one of the other char uh, characteristics or not? I don't remember. Um, I didn't know. So it's almost more character. The character of the source of of the product offer, that there is more character inherent. And, and here I'm using the term character as in integrity, uh, caring, humility, empathy, the putting of others' concerns ahead of my own in the process of demonstrating my love. I'm not just demonstrating my love for my significant other. I'm demonstrating my love for all women and men. And I think that's beautiful, and you know, it gives me kind of the shivers to to to, to realize that that it, that sort of almost sentimental quality. I, I I don't want to kind of go in that direction, but that sort of empathy and that concern and that caring. Um, 
you know that you can sense that essence because that's that's the very essence of Chelsea Rocks and you know how I wish to live my life and conduct my business although you know obviously I'm a professional business person as much as I love the the poetry of diamonds and all the rainbows and unicorns but you're absolutely right and I think that laboratory grown diamonds are part of a bigger trajectory in consumable goods particularly in the luxury sector to align one's consumer choices with one's values right. and I think and I think that that's something that can only continue and frankly in my opinion should be celebrated um, and the other point I'd like to make is yes I agree with you that there is a sense of stripping down to the essence with laboratory grown diamonds in parts of the market, but that's not necessarily the part of the market we're playing in. Right. Um, we're, we're in the sort of upper middle quartile, I would, I would hope, um, whether we're perceived as that is, is anyone's um, personal choice. Um, but what I would stress is that we're not trying to say that we're better than anyone, which goes back to your point about humility. You know, a diamond is a diamond, whether it's, you know, a miracle of nature or a miracle of mankind's ingenuity. And we're very respectful of our colleagues, you know, be it at De Beers or Al Rosa, you know, or elsewhere in the mind community. You know, there have, there have been great strides made to, you know, clean up the act and to make the world a better place. Um, you know, but there are some clear, some clear things that we can say about lab brains. For example, there is obviously no extractive mining involved you know we're not displacing indigenous communities and land in terms of soil erosion so yeah there are some very clear claims that we can make but um part of the work that i'm doing also in association with industry organizations is really campaigning for greater quantification of the claims because you know there is this phenomena of greenwashing you know not just in the diamond industry but i don't know in organic food or you know I think there's huge discussion around hybrid cars right now about how greener green car e-cars right so I'm trying to make sure that we're sort of if you excuse the pun held up to the light and scrutinized in the same way that the mind diamond boys and girls are so um, I think there's a lot of work left to be done well I think it's more honest you know it's more transparent and I think that authenticity is part of your brand, you know, that there is this willingness to be subject to the scrutiny uh, that you, you want to model for everybody in your industry and beyond your industry. And I think, you know, the, uh, Bill Gates had a talk that he gave at the World Economic Forum a couple of years ago uh, where he talked about the green premium. And that's what you've just prompted in my mind was his hypothesis, by the way, was all of the traditional non-green industries, we have to find a way to bring their cost of production up to the cost of production of the green alternative and close that green premium gap in order to make the green offer the default rather than the old dirty one. And so I, it's kind of out of left field a little bit, but you got me started thinking about that greenwashing comment that I think there's a lot of that going on, that not all that green, they're trying to imply that their actual cost structure does not need to increase in order to be branded as green. So I don't know. I don't know if that prompts any thought on your part. 
Yeah, I think I think it I think the green premium is actually absolutely dead on. I mean, one's seen it at least in Europe and UK with organic food for a long time, you know, where organic food was, you know, 10, 20% more than let's say normal food, um, often without justification. So I think that um yeah, I think that you know there has to be an increase in sustainability certifications. So there's um, an organization called SCS and we're looking to certify our laboratory grown diamonds so they can actually be quantified from a sustainability perspective. And then, um, you know, we, we work largely only with certified stones which have been certified by a gemological lab. So really all of this is about consumer trust because I think people only really buy things from people and from companies who they trust you know that there's so many examples also from the non-diamond segment and I think it's really part of keeping that promise about what we do to behave with integrity Uh, to your point about the trust I think there you can't have trust without transparency and just spoken about the, the level of transparency required to to achieve the trust level I'm curious, going back to your example of walking into the K jewelry store in New York City. Yes. How did that how did that particular conversation end? You know, once once you brought the example up, you could not tell the difference. Did yes. uh, did they still try to sell it to you? Obviously you I weren't honestly, there to buy I, a diamond base. I can't remember. I think this um period of lockdown has done funny things to my memory, but um for me it was just and I think for other people I very much hope is seeing is believing. It's like, you know, people can listen to me or they can read articles or listen to other people. But if you, there's something very tangible and concrete about having something in your hand and seeing it. And if I put in your hand these two rings and you saw the luster, the fire, the brilliance, the beauty, and you couldn't tell the difference and one was $6,000 less, I'm pretty sure which one you'd choose. Right. And, and for me, that was such a, as an entrepreneur, that was like and such an aha moment. I was like, this is the future. You know, this this is an inexorable rise. Yes, there will always be a place for mine diamonds and the story they tell. And absolutely. So I'm very much seeing this as an expansion of the market rather than a contraction. I think there's enough sunshine for everyone. I learned something I learned something in that description. I guess I would have thought it's natural the uh, the mine diamonds need a distrib- distribution channel, you know, the retail stores, you know, the K's and so on. I guess I wasn't aware that those uh, retail distribution channels also carried the laboratory grown. So you have, you know, your uh, competitive products. I don't know that your product per se is going to be carried in that store, but you get what I mean. Um, you're competing Absolutely. against the retail distribution just as you would uh, the mine diamonds and you know, that's another factor for you to take into account in your business model, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, uh, as we all know, you know, in any market, they're direct and indirect competitors. Um, and without getting too kind of nerdy and techy on you, you know, my first objective is to educate the consumer. We're in an early adopter market in America. It's slightly ahead of the curve. You know, you guys are always two, three years ahead of us. Um, particularly with fashion and consumer goods. Um, So, you know, the consumer has a burden in terms of cognitive load. 
you need to understand what is laboratory grown diamond. Are they what's called a diamond simulant, which is you know cubic zirconia, which is just a cheap imitation? Is it a Swarovski crystal? You know what is it? It's a diamond. So um, the Federal Trade Commission in 2018 they actually published a piece of advice, you know, asking that question: What is a diamond? And they said a diamond is defined by its molecular structure. If you look at the molecular structure of lab-grown or a mind, it's identical. So they said, you know, laboratory-grown diamond, sorry, this is a bit dry now, but should not be referred to as a synthetic diamond because it is a diamond judged by the following criteria, chemical, physical, optical, and atomic. So, you know, I think that closes that argument down, but definitely in terms of the retail setting, um, you know, we are going head to head with mind. We're also going head to head with mosinite, which is not diamond. Um, it's a diamond simulant. Um, you know, pearls, other gemstones. So you know, I kind of circle back to our comment about choice. Yeah, that was fascinating. By the way, I don't mind you geeking. You can geek out on us anytime you want, because okay. that's that's really so. You you highlighted this legal definition, I'm reminded always of champagne uh, as the sort of context for this is that you can grow all the sparkling wine you want on the, you know, in the Napa Valley, but you can't call it champagne. Right. You know, that sort of brand halo. And as you were talking, I was like, didn't De Beers actually open a chain of jewelry stores in the United States as part of their strategy? They vertically integrated all the way from the ground to the finger right. of the consumer. Correct. In order to do it. Correct. Absolutely. So I was working in De Beers back in the early 2000s, and there was a lot of um, misconception about what De Beers did. De Beers is first and foremost a, a mining company, mainly in South Africa, as you know. And then lots of people were like, you know, aren't De Beers jewelers? And then I think there was so much misconception that in the end, they decided the next logical path was to open their own retail outlets, which they did. And they also have a laboratory grown product called Lightbox. So, um, yeah. Fascinating. So uh, where can I buy a Chelsea Rock? Uh, if I have a significant other and I'm a oh. farm bred farm boy from Western Wisconsin. And well, since, you, since you asked, Garrick. Um, <laughs> uh, so there are various outlets you can buy from Chelsea-rocks.com. Um, Currently, uh, we're in Ainsworth Jewelers, which is headed up by uh, my gemologist, Helen Dimmock, and her new husband, Phil Ainsworth. Uh, they're fifth-generation jewelers in the North of England in Blackburn. Um, and we're currently planning a rollout to 150 retailers before Christmas in the UK. Wow. And, then, and then next year, we're um, expanding further into Europe um, and also Southeast Asia. So, um, you know, this is quite a challenge as a self-funded business, um, but I believe it's my path. And, um, and I believe that diamonds have the capacity to bring joy to people's lives and to celebrate their love. And I, I think that's a noble purpose. That's just beautiful. Well, two summers ago, I think I told you, um, I rented a camper van and drove all over the UK, and, well, Great Britain. Uh, starting in London, we drove up to Edinburgh. Um, and by the way, if you've never been in a car accident in Scotland before, 
I don't recommend it. Uh, it was easily resolved, but, um, you know, testimony to my ability to get into trouble, I guess. Uh, oh that that 150 retailers in the UK is really exciting. And I, I am even more grateful now that you are my friend and that you- <laughs> I'll make you a special prize, don't worry. <laughs> well, that you took time out of your busy day as you're launching this business to talk Thank with you. these- uh, these two Hanyaks. It was a huge pleasure. Thank you for offering. Oh, and I, you know, I'll just say, uh, I know that it's not uh, boy meets girl and boy buys diamond uh, for girl uh, metaphor anymore. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's uh, you know across genders and all this stuff, which right. is awesome. But right. um, you are looking at two guys who have four boys uh, in the in the system, so to speak. Might, might need to come visit your store someday. Yep. Absolutely. And, and uh, I always say, if you can dream it, we can make it. Um, actually, you know, diamonds are not just about engagement rings. We get quite a lot of professional ladies buying for themselves. Mm. So um, that's really nice too. That's really cool. So how can people communicate with you? Obviously, they can go to chelsea-rocks.com to that's buy right. a diamond. How, um, how, do they, how do they communicate with you? Um, they can phone us, email us, Instagram us, Facebook us, tweet us. I think um, uh, they can come into the store if they're in England, Ainsworth Jewelers. Um, so all of those channels are open and active. Cool. Well, I can't wait till we can, you know, enjoy a cool beverage together again in person. Amazing. Thank you. I'd just like to add just... Um, um, just to tack on to your kind question, um, Derek, is um, we actually also offer all of our potential customers or just interested members of the public the chance to have a free consultation with our gemologist, Helen. So should any of your listeners have any burning questions about diamonds in general or lab-grown specifically or want to design their dream ring, we just set that up as a service to be transparent and informed. How cool. I love I love that, and I love that you've come on and uh, to uh, running into the fog, Joanna, and shared your Thank story. You. I, I want to close, and I'm gonna let you bring us home, Eric. After I say the following thing, you you mentioned your your big why, your purpose, your just mm -hmm. cause is to be an honorable custodian of the earth. I wrote that down here in my notes, and I just think that, that it's it's a it's an awesome you know big why. Well, why does Chelsea Rocks exist, and what is you know on a day to day incredibly motivating for Joanna to, to continue down this mission. Thank you for, for joining us, Eric. Take us home. I'll just say, you know, how grateful I am to, to know you and uh, what an honor it is to have you here as a guest on our show. And uh, I'd like to encourage all of the people who are listening to this in the, in the weeks and months ahead, uh, go check this out. This is really fascinating. I'm not the most ornamental fellow in the world. Uh, you know, I, I'm into watches. But, you know, jewelry is not really my thing, but I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic and I'm fascinated by your business model and, and your mission in the world. And I think it's just really cool that, uh, that you are taking this leap. And, it's, and here's the thing I'll leave you with. There is a series of challenges that I'm sure you've overcome already and a series of challenges to come that you're going to have to confront and overcome. But know that you are chosen for this, my dear. You have been chosen for this mission in the world and that you've got a couple of fans in the Joe Bros who will do whatever it takes to see you succeed. 
Uh, so know that we've got your back. And thank you. Thank you. That's re that's really heartwarming, and um, and and you know, I offer my service and support to you and your business, and and thank you for the wonderful friendship and chat today. It's been a real delight and pleasure. I'll let Derek turn off the recording and we can say our goodbyes. But uh, again, uh, running into the fog, whatever edition this is, uh, we, uh, we encourage you all to go check out Joanna. And uh, thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, Derek, for uh, being my co-interlocutor here with, with our lovely guest. And uh, Joanna, thanks again. Thanks. Yeah, always, always fun. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Joanna. Have a great day, everybody.